This morning, if you're just joining us, we've been going through a series in the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer. So I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. The Lord's Prayer is found in two different spots in the New Testament, but this is, this is one of them that we're kind of keying in on. And we've just been going really slowly. So I'm going to read the whole prayer, but we're going to focus this morning our attention on the phrase, your kingdom come. So Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 9. Hear the word of the Lord. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Well, one of the reasons that I think it's so important for us to know and meditate on how the Lord Jesus taught us to pray is because the way it teaches us to pray is so contrary to the way the world teaches us to live that we would not naturally gravitate to this kind of prayer because it is fundamentally at odds with how we are all guided by the world. So think about this, what we've seen so far. From the young age, we are taught that we need to look out for ourselves, do what's best for us. We're taught to live like orphans who have no one to care for them. But Jesus teaches us that when we pray, we come to a father who has adopted us in love and is eager to hear from us. We say our Father because we've been made part of a family, united by the blood of Jesus. Throughout our lives, we're taught that our focus should be make a good name for yourself. Build your image, build your reputation, your brand. Do whatever you can to make sure people think well of you. Whether it's in your workplace, on social media, in the community, in your own home, whatever you can, make sure that your name is lifted up. But then Jesus teaches us that the first priority of our hearts, the first thing I should ask God for when I come in prayer is that God's name be hallowed. We are to pray and live in such a way that his name, not our own, is the passion of our lives. And then we are taught from a a very young age that our lives are They're ours to direct, that our destinies are ours to determine, our dreams are ours to pursue. We should be true to ourselves, and don't let anyone else tell you what you can be or should do. We're taught that we are the masters of our fate and the captains of our souls. Or as the prophet Frank Sinatra taught us, regrets, I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention, I did what I had to do and saw it through without exemption. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway, and much and more, much more than this, I did it my way. That's that's the doctrine of the world. It teaches us that in ways big and small, we're constantly told that we are the rulers of our own lives. That we issue our own marching orders. No one can tell us what to do or how to live. 
In fact, we see our lives as little kingdoms with ourselves on the throne. And we dedicate our lives to advancing our kingdom, to expanding the reach of our control and the places where we get to call the shots, seeing our kingdom come. And then Jesus turns everything on its head when he teaches us to pray to our Father, your kingdom come. When we pray that, I don't think we realize what a massive and seismic shift in values and priorities it is. When we pray that, we're no longer praying for our own little kingdoms. We're stepping off the throne, laying aside our claims of kingship and acknowledging that God is the true king, not me. In fact, he is our king, not just the king. He is my king. He is the one who is master of my fate and captain of my soul. We live all of life under his rule and we seek to live it his way, not my way. So praying your kingdom come is nothing less than a declaration of loyalty. When we pray that, we are turning away from our tiny personal kingdoms and instead pledging our allegiance to God as our great king and declaring our loyalty to his kingdom over and above any other. But the question is, what exactly are we praying for when we say those three little words? What do we mean when we say, your kingdom come? That's what we're going to look at this morning. So we're going to have three sections. The first is the shortest. The three things I want us to look at is what the kingdom is not. We're going to look at three quick things the kingdom is not. And then spend most of our time on, well then, what is the kingdom? And finally, how does it come? How does the kingdom come? So let's start by talking about what the kingdom of God is not here in the Lord's Prayer. I've got three things the kingdom is not. I made them all three P's so it'll be easier to remember. The kingdom of God is, in the Lord's Prayer is not political, providential, or plural. So let's unpack those. First, the kingdom of God is not political. In the New Testament, the Jews of Jesus' day made this mistake, right? If you've read through the New Testament, you see that the people constantly think that Jesus has come to usher in a a restoration and expansion of Israel's political power. They think, great, the king's here. So he's going to round up enough military and political strength. We're going to topple the existing government and he's going to establish a new political kingdom. His disciples even ask him for positions of influence and power when that happens. Basically saying, hey, when you're the king, can I be in the cabinet? Can I be one of your advisors? But what does Jesus tell us? What does Jesus tell Pilate about his kingdom? Jesus says, my kingdom, it's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. In other words, Jesus is making clear, look, my, I did not come to establish a political kingdom in any nation, Israel or other. Jesus rules not from elected offices or from capital buildings, but in the hearts and lives of men and women. Therefore, the kingdom of God does not come through legislation or the outcomes of elections. The kingdom of God is not political. The second thing the kingdom of God is not referring to here in the Lord's Prayer is what I'm calling his providential kingdom. Other people call this his universal kingdom. Here's what I mean. On one hand, 
We know even from our call to worship and lots of other scriptures, God is king over all the earth. His kingdom extends over every molecule of creation. He rules over the rising of the sun and the changing of the seasons. Every gust of wind and shining star and blooming flower is his. Every creature, as we sang earlier, is under his sovereign authority. So that's not what we're talking about, though, when we pray, your kingdom come. It's true. That is his kingdom. That's one way we talk about it. But we don't mean that when we say your kingdom come because his kingship already covers all of creation. We're not asking him to be more in control of the workings of the world because he's already fully ruling over all of it as the great king over all the earth. So when we pray your kingdom come, we don't mean his providential kingdom, but instead his kingdom of grace, which does not cover all of creation yet. Third, the kingdom we're praying for here in the Lord's Prayer is not plural. What I mean by that, I had to have a P word, so it's a little bit of a stretch. But what I mean is that sometimes the Bible will refer to this kingdom as the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And sometimes it will refer to it as the kingdom of the Son. These are not two kingdoms. They are not kingdoms either at odds or subordinate. They are one kingdom. The Father's kingdom is the Son's kingdom. So I say that because as we look at a lot of texts today, one might reference one and one might reference the other. We're not talking about two different kingdoms. We're talking about one kingdom of God. So that's what it's not. When we pray your kingdom come, we're not talking about a political kingdom, God's providential kingdom, or a plural kingdom. So, what is it? What is the kingdom we're talking about? And that question, that's a whole Bible question. Because the story of the Bible is the story of God's kingdom. To answer the question of what we mean when we say your kingdom come, what we need to do is do a little biblical theology. So think back, those of you who went to the class over this summer about biblical theology, we're going to use some of those tools that you picked up in class. And if you weren't there or if you've forgotten, as a reminder, biblical theology doesn't just mean theology that's from the Bible. Biblical theology is when we find a particular thread or a theme or idea in the Bible and we follow that thread all the way through to see how it's woven throughout all of Scripture. And just like if you have an an old sweater and you pull a certain thread from the sweater and you keep pulling and you realize, oh, that was the thread holding it together. Oops. Well, when we start pulling on the thread of kingdom, we realize, oh, that's the thread that holds this thing together as well. That all throughout the Bible, the idea of God's king and his kingdom is what connects all these stories, all these eras, all these dealings of God with his people are all coming together in this idea of God's kingdom. So this morning, we're going to start pulling on a thread. And we're just going to keep pulling this thread and see where this thread leads us to answer what is the kingdom that we're praying for. Okay, so we got to start at the beginning. So the first question is, where does the kingdom of God start? Have you ever thought about that? Where does the kingdom of God start? Now, an obvious answer would be, like, well, well, when the first king came. You might be tempted to go say, okay, whenever Israel got their first king, that's when the kingdom started. But we actually need to back up further. We need to go all the way back to the beginning. In fact, we need to go farther than the beginning. 
Because in one sense, God has been king for eternity. 1 Timothy 1.17 says, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, only wise God, be glory forever. Psalm 10.16 says, The Lord is king forever and ever. Not only that, Jesus tells his followers in Matthew 25, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So God's plan from before creation was to build a kingdom for himself. He's always been king and he says, I'm going to make a kingdom. Okay? So what is this kingdom he's going to make? And one of the most helpful ways I've found to think about God's kingdom is God's people in God's place under God's rule. Okay? So God's people in God's place under God's rule. That's when we think about the kingdom, that's a really helpful way to think about it. So let's think about how your Bible starts. How does your Bible begin? With God creating his kingdom. He creates a place and a people. He makes a world filled with beauty and wonder, and he calls it all good. And then in his world, he even creates a special place called the garden. And he makes man and woman in his own image to be his people and to rule under him. He places them in his garden, in his special place, and then he gives them dominion as little kings and queens over all creation, calling them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Or in other words, to expand his kingdom from the garden to the ends of the earth. So your Bible starts off, we've got God's people in God's place and we know they're under God's rule, right? Because he tells them what to do and what not to do. He tells them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, work the garden, keep it. And the only law of the land is you may not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One tree, center of the garden. Everything else is yours. I've made it for you. One tree, don't touch it. Don't eat it. It says don't eat it. The only law of the land is that they may not eat from this one tree. And the penalty is death. So here we've got God's kingdom, do we not? We've got God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's place, the garden, under God's rule. You may not eat of that tree. Everything is good. Everything's going great. And that lasts, oh, about two chapters. Your Bible's got a lot of chapters, so like it doesn't bode well that the plan kind of goes awry after two. This is mankind's first rebellion. Adam and Eve believe the lie that maybe God is withholding something. You know, he seems really good and kind, but I'm hearing from this serpent that there's more that he doesn't want us to have. Maybe if we disobey, we can just determine our own sense of good and evil for ourselves. In fact, we'd be like God in the sense that we wouldn't need him ruling over us anymore. We'd be our own kings. Well, this treason against God as king is what the Bible calls sin. See, sin is something that we, I feel like we often twist. It's not just doing something that we think of as heinous. Sometimes we file, like the only thing that gets filed in the sin folder is something heinous like murder or terrorism or robbing. Like, yeah, that is sin. And we leave it at that. But we sin anytime we refuse to submit to God as king and instead do what we think is right 
and best. Sin is removing God from his rightful throne and instead putting ourselves forward as the rulers of our own lives. And when Adam and Eve sin this way, something catastrophic happens. They are kicked out of the garden and they are exiled from God's place. The kingdom is broken. They are cut off from the tree of life and now face a life of toil and pain under the curse and the judgment of death. And as as descendants of Adam and Eve, we all unfortunately share this sinful nature. We're all prone, aren't we, to believe the serpent's lies that, you know what, maybe life would be better without God as our king. We all at times think we know better than God and try to rule our lives apart from him. We see God as someone who's keeping us from enjoying the things we want and things we think we deserve. So we try to get free of him. We think, oh, if only I could get out from under him. And that way we're like the nations in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed king, saying, so here's what they say. All the people get together and say like, hey, let's get together against God and here's what we ought to do. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, they're saying, God is holding us back. He's he's keeping us down. Like, we would have a better life apart from him. So how can we throw off this king? How can we be rid of him? And we do the same thing. We plot against God and his king and try to burst the bonds that are holding us back. This God who's done nothing but give us good. But we think that there's more. Now fast forward. There's a lot, there's way more sub, if you ever watch a good TV show, there's like the main storyline, right? And then there's all kinds of subplots that like might show up for an episode or two. The Bible has lots of subplots, but they all feed back into this. So we're going to fast forward up to the time where eventually God's people find themselves in slavery. They find themselves in slavery to an evil and oppressive ruler in Egypt. They're slaves in a dominion of darkness with no way to escape. But God is determined to have his kingdom. God has not given up on the plan saying, oh, I guess that didn't work. He says, I will have a kingdom. So he sends a deliverer. And Moses leads the people out of slavery and to Mount Sinai. And guess what God does at Mount Sinai? He makes Israel his people by covenant. And he promises them a place, a prosperous, fruitful place land of their own, flowing with milk and honey. But that's not all. God gives them a law to rule over them. So you've got God's people on their way to God's place under God's rule. That sounds like a kingdom to me. Well, when God sets them apart in Exodus 19, listen to what he says to them. He says to Israel, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, For all the earth is mine, hear this, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God says, you'll be my kingdom. I rescued you out of slavery. I brought you here so that I could put you under my rule. I'm going to give you a place. I make you my people and you're going to be my kingdom. And everything's going great. So if you've kind of tuned out for it, 
after Genesis 2 and you tune back in, you're like, oh good, things are still going well. They get to go into the land that God promised. They settle in. You've got God's people and God's place under God's rule. But it doesn't last too long before, guess what? Just like in the garden, they reject God from being king. They look around and they see that, hey, these other nations, they have human kings. And so Israel says what all of us do when someone has something we don't. They say, oh, I want one too. Like, I like those. I want one of those. Now this request, it really upsets the prophet Samuel. But listen to what God tells him. God says, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. God's people rejected him as their king. They said, we'd rather serve another king, someone else, anyone else other than God. In 1 Samuel 10, 19, Samuel tells him, today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses and you've said to him, set a king over us. I mean, can you imagine the audacity? They're saying, Thanks, God. We know the whole getting us out of Egypt thing. That was great. We know how you save us from distress and calamities. But we'd rather not have you. Could you give us a different king? The the ironic thing is that Samuel goes on to tell them, he says, do you want to know what your king's going to do? And if you read the passage, the word that shows up over and over is take. He's going to take your sons and he's going to put them in the military. He's going to take your property. He's going to take your money through taxes. He's going to take, he's going to take, he's going to take. When all God's done as their king is give and give and give. And they say, yeah, 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 but we don't want you, God, as our king. Give us another king. And this is so tragic and so painfully familiar. Don't we find ourselves doing this constantly? Whenever we sin, what we're doing is rejecting the God who saves us and saying, I want another king. It's putting another king over us. So this morning, one of the things I want you to think through is what is that thing for you? Like when you find yourself saying, no thanks God, like there's something else I want. That, that when you see it in someone else's life, you say, ooh, I want that too. It could be a possession, but it could also just be a position. It could be a way of living. It could be a relationship. It could be all sorts of things, but what is the thing that you find yourself tempted to set up as king over your life? We all have them. Back to the story. When the people reject God as king, guess what happens? Same thing that happened the first time. Eventually they are exiled out of God's place. Again, the kingdom is broken. God's people are no longer in God's place. And that's how your Old Testament ends. God's people are not in God's place and not living under God's rule. So we're left with the question hanging in the Old Testament is how will the kingdom of God ever be established? And then we come to the New Testament. And we read as an angel tells a young virgin girl that she's pregnant with a son that she's to name Jesus. And this son, the angel says, he will be great and will be called son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him what? The throne of his father David. 
And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his, of his kingdom there will be no end. In other words, the New Testament is saying, the king has come. All the Old Testament we waited and waited and waited. And New Testament opens as the king is here. And when Jesus grows up, he starts to proclaim a message. What is the message? He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus is announcing, it's here. The kingdom of God has arrived because the king has arrived. And the response to this news is simple. He says, turn from your sin and trust the king. Repent and believe the gospel. And Jesus makes this his mission. As he goes about proclaiming the kingdom, eventually Jesus enters Jerusalem the week before Passover. And as he comes in, how is he greeted? With cheers of, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The king, God's ruler, has now entered Jerusalem, the place of God's presence in the temple, and the people of God are cheering him. All is well. Until a week later, where yet again, the people reject their king. He's not the king they wanted. They thought he was going to be a different kind of king. He doesn't scratch where they itch. He's, he doesn't do things the way they want him to do it. So when Jesus is arrested and brought before his people, Pilate asks, shall I crucify your king? To which they respond, we have no king but Caesar. Do you hear the echoes? This is the storyline of the Bible. God creating a kingdom and they coming to his people and the people over and over again saying, He's not our king. Something else is our king. The king has come and the people rejected him. But what does the king do? Does the king say, fine. Forget it. You reject me, I reject you. That would be fair. That's probably how a lot of us would act. But not the king. No, the king is crucified for those who should have worshipped him. Our king died to save us for all the times we reject him. Our king dies to pull us out of our slavery to sin. And because of him, because of Jesus, the father rescues us from the clutches of a ruler more evil than Pharaoh. As we read earlier, Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. What I think is so helpful about that verse, friends, is that it makes so clear that there are only two kingdoms in the world. There's lots of complexity to life in the world, things that can't be boiled down, but you can boil down the world into two kingdoms, the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. And unless and until we are delivered by Jesus and made citizens of his kingdom, we remain citizens of the domain of darkness. There is no neutrality. You say, well, I'm kind of impartial. I don't really get into this whole thing. That's not an option. There are two kingdoms in which everyone lives. And we all start off in the domain of darkness because we've all rejected the rightful king. And unless and until we are plucked out of it and put into another, we remain there. So friends, 
the first thing we need to know is which kingdom are you in? Have you bowed your knee to King Jesus? Have you trusted in him for the forgiveness of your sins? Not have you gone to church. Not have you checked Christian on Facebook. Not do you identify that way, but have you said, Jesus, I am no longer the king. You are the king because only you can save. Jesus the king died to free you from slavery to sin and to bring you into his glorious kingdom. So do what he tells us to do. He says the kingdom is here and what do we do? We repent and believe the good news. Now we're going to say more about that in a minute. But one other thing I want you to notice from Colossians 1.13 that says he were transferred from one kingdom to another. And that is that when we pray for God's kingdom to come, we're also praying against the kingdom of darkness. If there's only two competing kingdoms in the world, when we pray for God's kingdom to come, that means we're also praying for Satan's kingdom to be toppled. We are praying for his blinding work to be undone. We're praying for eyes to be opened to see the truth. We're praying for, God's, for prisoners to be set free from captivity. And we're praying for the triumph of God's truth over Satan's lies. So pray in your kingdom come. As those words just roll off your tongue out of familiarity, realize that they are a declaration of war against the powers of darkness. Now back to the story of the kingdom. The king has come. He's announced the kingdom is here. He's been rejected again. The king dies. And after King Jesus dies and rises again, he ascends to the Father's right hand where he is today ruling and reigning. And then what does the king do? He sends out his followers into all the earth to proclaim his kingdom. So we, we kind of failed when it came to expanding the garden to the ends of the earth. But Jesus says, now that the king is here, go to the ends of the earth. The kingdom needs to grow. As his people went about, Acts 17.7 describes them this way, that they went around saying, there is another king, Jesus. That's what marked the people of God. Is everywhere they went, people were like, hey, do you know who the king is? Oh yeah, it's so and so. They're like, uh-uh, there's another king. And you need to know him. His name is Jesus. So this is what the church did, and this is what the church does, is that we proclaim the kingdom until the king returns. So, so what is the kingdom of God? Ultimately, it's God's people in God's place under God's rule. I want you waking up tonight saying that. You're not even sure where you are, but I want you saying God's people in God's place under God's rule. So what does it mean for the, that kingdom to come? That's, so we're, we're establishing this bit by bit. That's kingdom. How does it come? And the kingdom comes in three ways. Initially, progressively, and finally. Initially, progressively, and finally. First, the kingdom is what we just talked about. The kingdom came initially when the king came. When Jesus took on flesh as a man and then died and rose again for sinners, then ascended to the Father's right hand, Jesus was crowned as God's anointed king. And his throne was established forever. When Jesus came, remember what he came announcing. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven has drawn near. In other words, he's saying the kingdom is present because the king is present. Then through the cross, King Jesus established 
us as his kingdom. In the same way, back in Exodus, God rescues the people out of slavery, brings them to Mount Sinai, puts them under his rule and says what? You will be to me a kingdom. Listen to Revelation 1. It says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. Priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Jesus is saying, okay, it's not just Israel. Now it's you, church. He says, you are my kingdom. So when Jesus came, the kingdom came initially. But the kingdom is also coming progressively. Because the kingdom is found wherever Jesus reigns in the heart and life of someone who bows before him in repentance and trust. Now the sad truth is that even after we were made citizens of Jesus' kingdom, we still reject him. Time to time, we still seek for worldly treasure and forsake the king of kings. But the difference is that now we know that he has paid for every failing and we are his forevermore. So we don't come back out of the kingdom. We are firm and secure. And as we learn to live more and more as citizens of his kingdom and to submit ourselves to his good rule, his kingdom comes increasingly in us. So when we pray, your kingdom come, one thing we're praying is that. God, rule in my heart more and more. Conquer every rebellious part of me and help me bow the knee to King Jesus in every area of my life. Even that struggle, even that fear, even that relationship, even that idol. Now we need to be very clear about who is and is not a part of this kingdom. The Bible gives us very clear categories of who is and is not. So what can keep you out of this kingdom? 1 Corinthians 6 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, it says. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Similarly, Galatians 5. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you as I warned you before, Paul says, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The Bible wants to like leave no ambiguity. And I know, like I said earlier, we tend to think of some of those as more salacious sins, things that kind of catch our ears and say, whoa. But did you hear some of the more mundane ones? Enmity, jealousy, envy, dissension. Those who do those things will not inherit the kingdom. In other words, God is saying that those who persist in living in sinful rebellion against God as their king will not be part of the kingdom. That's what that list is meant to say. It's not an exhaustive list. It's saying if you're living a way marked by rebellion against the king, 
you're not in the kingdom. Second thing we see is that in Matthew 19, 24, Jesus says, again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. What does he mean? That rich people can't go to heaven? No. He is saying that for those with many worldly resources, be it money or something else, it's so tempting to look to those riches as your true king. To be the kingdom you seek. To be the thing that you serve. That you put yourself under and look to that. And for those who seek after and trust anything else instead of God's kingdom, they won't be able to enter. Finally, Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, just because you're religious and just because you identify as a Christian doesn't mean you're a part of the kingdom. So we're left asking, okay, so who is a part of this kingdom? Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 18, 3. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And the rest of Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So who's a part of this kingdom? those who truly recognize and admit their spiritual bankruptcy. The ones who are broken and contrite over their sin and realize that they have nothing good in them to earn God's favor. They have nothing to put forward on a resume saying, God, I deserve this. So they are poor in spirit. It's those who humble themselves like children and have a childlike trust in God's promise that Jesus died to pay for their sin and that if they will just believe him, and trust him. Salvation is theirs. They rest and delight in his promise of bringing us into his kingdom. And these people don't merely pay lip service to Jesus as their king, but they actually live under his kingship, doing what he commands, doing the will of his Father. To those, the Bible says, belongs the kingdom of God. So how can we possibly get in that kingdom? Because hopefully you heard a lot of yourself in the first category and thought, ooh, the second one. Well, for us to get in that kingdom, it takes a work of the Trinity. Listen to two verses. John 3, 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. No one's getting in apart from the Spirit causing a new birth. And then the one we keep coming back to, Colossians 1.13, He, the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption. So how do we enter the kingdom? We are delivered by the Father through the Son's redemption and born again by the Spirit. That's the only way we get in. And it's all by grace through faith. The Father delivering the Son redeeming, and the Spirit causing new birth. The only way into the kingdom is by God's work and faith in it. So how does God's kingdom come? It comes progressively as we bow the knee to Jesus, both once and for all in conversion and increasingly in sanctification. 
And the kingdom also comes progressively as more and more and more people bow the knee to him. As more people move from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the sun, God's kingdom comes. So as we close, let me connect a couple dots here. Remember I've been saying all along that God's kingdom is God's people in God's place under God's rule. And then the last section I said the kingdom comes three ways. Initially, progressively, and finally. Well, the more I thought about it, the more I realized those actually correspond. When God's kingdom came initially, God's rule was established when Jesus was enthroned as king. Now, as more and more of God's people are rescued from their sins and increasingly changed to bow their hearts to King Jesus, his kingdom is coming progressively. So we've got God's people under God's rule. And what does that leave? God's place. So when we pray for God's kingdom to come, we are also praying for the final and forever coming of his place. When the kingdom comes in fullness, God's people will dwell with him in an unshakable kingdom of glory. It will be a kingdom free from sin and the curse. It will be a kingdom marked by peace, meaning there you will not have to live in fear of a threat of anything. Not war, not crime, not someone hurting you. There is safety. You'll be free from danger. It is a kingdom of health, freedom from sickness, It is a kingdom of life. There is no death. A kingdom of wholeness. You will be more fully alive than you can ever dream. It's a kingdom of rest where you cease from your labors and you can find the rest that's promised to us in Hebrews. It is a kingdom of joy in his presence is fullness of joy. It's a kingdom where we will finally feel at home. Have you ever experienced that? There are some places that you just, you feel a little bit more at home there a space with a people. There's something about that that you just think like, that's my spot. That's my place. That's, that's a little foretaste of what heaven is, what the new earth will be. That when we get there, we'll say, oh, this is where I belong. This is why nothing else seemed to fit. This is why it never, I was always out of place, a step behind that I didn't really understand. This is home. It will be a kingdom where we all have purposeful and pleasing work. No more drudgery of the going to a nine to five, punching in, punching out just to pay bills, but you hate it. You will do work, but oh, it will satisfy your soul. You will do what you're made to do. And it is a kingdom where there is no end to relationships. Whether someone dying that you have to say goodbye to, someone moving, whether it be division in the relationship where a fight breaks out, never again will you have to say goodbye. There is a kingdom where there's no fear no pain, no sadness. That is the kingdom that we long to come when we say, your kingdom come. We yearn for the day when Revelation 11 says the angel will blow his trumpet and loud voices in heaven will announce with joy, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever. So when we say your kingdom come, What are we praying for? For Jesus to reign in our heart and in the hearts of more and more people. We're praying for the fulfillment of God's plan to have his redeemed people living in his glorious place under the rule of his good and gracious king. 
And friends, this kingdom of heaven is the treasure hidden in a field. We joyfully should give up everything else to have it because it's worth more than anything. And because it's so precious, we ought to seek his kingdom first. We seek it with our lives and we seek it with our prayers. And best of all, we take heart because as we pray your kingdom come, we have the assurance that it is our Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. I'm going to pray now. And at the end, I'm going to invite you to pray the Lord's Prayer with me. So let's pray. Father, we yearn for your kingdom to come. God, would you do it increasingly in us, with the people in this room, would the kingship of Jesus become more and more evident in our lives? Would your church be marked as the people who submit and bow the knee to King Jesus, gladly following where he leads, joyfully doing what he commands, loving what he loves? And God, would your kingdom extend to more and more people, So that those who right now are still in the domain of darkness, would you pluck them from it? God, would you open their eyes to see the darkness they live in and show them there is another kingdom. There is a good king. God, would you save many, deliver them from one kingdom and put them in the kingdom of your beloved son. And God, we yearn for the day when the king parts the skies and brings your kingdom once and for all. We will never have to pray again, your kingdom come, because it will be here in all its glorious fullness. Until then, would you help us to pray these words and to mean them with all our hearts. So now we pray as your son taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.